Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sense Podcast. My guest today is Kathy Valentine. You know her as a member of the Go-Go's, and she just wrote an amazing book, All I Ever Wanted. Kathy? Hi, what's up, Bob? Okay, so why'd you write the book? Well, there's the big reason, and then there's all the little reasons. The big reason was I had wanted to write a book for a long time. Uh, I felt confident that I could write a good book. Um, I just felt like I didn't have a deadline and I didn't have an assignment and I didn't know if I had the discipline and the motivation to actually do it every day. But I got a book deal. So once I had a book deal, you'd be crazy not to write a book. So there's that reason. Okay, but a little bit slower, a little bit slower. How'd you get a book deal? Um, I was doing the Texas Book Festival. I was moderating a panel and uh, UT Press, uh, a woman was there and she liked, she started thinking, I wonder if Kathy would be interested in this. And I had been thinking about it for quite a while. I had done a Twitter memoir starting in like 2009 that I got in trouble for. And I took it down, not in trouble from Twitter, but from the rest of the Go-Go's. So I took it down. But it was there long enough for me to see that that um, my story was resonating with people. So... I, uh, I, I just, I had, I felt confident and yet at the same time, I wasn't sure what the story would be. I knew I wanted it to be a memoir. I'd read several memoirs and I thought, I got a story. I can do that. And I just kind of went from there. How much writing had you done before you attempted the memoir? Well, I had been a college student for many years. I was just, I have a tendency when, Life feels kind of like I'm not getting anywhere, which happens a lot as an artist, um, or that I was spinning my wheels or just feeling lost. I would take college classes, and a few years ago, I realized I was very close to having enough credits to to get a degree, so I started working towards an English degree because part of my big plan was I will write a book during an MFA program because then it'll be like having a uh, an assignment and I know I'll do it. But I got the book deal in between then. So 
in the course of writing for college, I was getting A's, I was getting good feedback, I was doing creative writing classes, turning in short stories. My first idea was to do a, a collection of short stories, but I didn't think anyone would buy me as a legit writer. Uh, so I thought, and plus, with short stories or literature, you're competing with every literary genius that's also writing books. Whereas if I wrote a memoir, it's like my story. I'm the one that's I, I'm the one that's going to tell this story the best. So it kind of was just a smart way to to try to introduce myself as a writer. Okay, there are a couple of things. How did you end up moderating that panel at the book fair? Well, I'm in Austin, and I'm a I'm kind of a a, a semi big fish in a semi little pond. So, you know, opportunities float my way every now and then. And the panel was with Jessica Hopper, who had put out a book called "The First Collection of Rock Criticism" by a female rock critic. And so, I think their idea was that it would be a little hook to have the the woman rock critic being moderated by the woman musician. Maybe that was the idea. Okay. So the woman who gave you the deal from the University of Texas Press, had you known her previously? No, I had not. And she, it was just a fluke. She found me. I'd had a, a woman had babysat my kid like years before, and she was working at UT Press. And this woman who had signing capabilities went to that person and said, did you say that you knew Kathy Valentine? So the former babysitter contacted me. I, I, con I contacted Gianna and we met for coffee. And Bob, I got to tell you, within an hour, I started feeling like, I think I've got a book deal. And I said, are you giving me a, wait, are you giving me a book deal? And I said, you haven't even seen how I can write. And she said, oh, we're not worried about it. We're not worried about it. And I asked, well, can I send you some stuff? I had written some scenes, uh, the, the scene about me getting an abortion when I'm 12 years old. I had written about that. I'd written about some of some things in my life. And I sent her the stuff. And she, I loved the answer because she wrote back and said, uh, I want this book. I want this book more than any book. And you could probably get another book deal. We can't offer you a lot. We're a nonprofit. And I said, yeah, but you're giving me a deal and I don't have to shop a manuscript. So I'll go with UT Press. Plus, I liked what they had been putting out. They'd put out a couple of uh, pretty cool little music books. Okay. And you were going to give the other reason for doing the book? I might have covered it and all that blabbing. Okay. Okay. Let's focus because, you know, there's that famous line on uh, the Springsteen live album where his mother says, you can always go back to college. Okay. <laughs> there are, most musicians, if they went to college at all, certainly don't finish. So when did you start taking college classes? I started, well, I started when I was 16, and then they kicked me out of, of community college because I didn't have a high school transcript. I didn't return till I was in L.A., and I was just very frustrated. I felt like every band I started just wouldn't get any traction, and it just started feeling like everything I did didn't go anywhere. And I thought, I, I mean, oh, I know what happened. I, I read a book, a historical fiction book, and it was just a fluke. I found it on an airplane, and my I felt like this feeling. I was enthralled with ancient history, and I started devouring all these books. Like, I mean, practically 
like academic things about ancient Rome, and I and that's what made me want to go back to school. I thought I want to I want to get a I want to study ancient history, I, and I started out with Latin because I wanted to read all the texts in actual Latin. Of course, I didn't realize that being a classic major just means that's all you do is is a uh, transcribe and and transpose uh, stuff. So anyway, I but then I realized very quickly I had to take basic college courses that I hadn't finished, so I taught myself algebra to. Get get myself up to a level of college. Well, how'd you teach yourself algebra? You just go buy books at like Barnes and Nobles, like teach yourself algebra. I just remember <laughs> high school uh, algebra one, I was doing it by trial and error. Then I got in trouble. They sent a report home to my parents, whatever. So I didn't see the learning curve as flat. I saw it as relatively steep. Well, I and so, but I just did it. It was like I had to do it to get into college level math. And I just kept finding these wonderful things. Like when I got into college level math, I took statistics. I thought, what a what a bore. And this statistic professor, and it was at Glendale Community College, and he remains to this day my favorite instructor I've ever had. I just sent him a book. We stay in touch. And he made mathematics seem like the language of God. He was phenomenal. And Learning is like that. It's like once you once you start feeling kind of fired up and and just that feeling of being enthralled is all I know. I hadn't found that since music. I'd never found anything that you know literally like made my palms sweat and made me my heart race. And learning something and doing well. I'm I've always been kind of an approval junkie. So getting an A in a class feels good. It gave me self esteem and validation. And I just. I like it. I just like it. So I just started kind of haphazardly taking courses, and I went on to Pasadena City College, and then I got married and stuff. And when I got to Austin, I started resuming mainly so I could get that into that MFA program. But there's a mis- mis- there's a mistake. I'm not actually. I've not graduated yet. I'm I'm two classes away from having my my college degree. So so do you plan to take those two classes? I do because one of them is just writing a, a thesis. It's even in this undergrad pro, undergrad program, you need to write a capstone thesis about. So that's that's one thing. And the other thing, I've been trying to just avoid as much as possible, um, like sitting in a classroom. <laughs> like I've done a lot of uh, portfolio things where I put together proof that I know the material well enough. I've done a lot of that and whatever I could get away with taking. Um, online. And then, of course, I've had to sit in a lot of classrooms. But if I can do it at home, I'd rather because I like making my own schedule. Okay. Well, as I say, you cover your life pretty well in your book. But just to hit some of the highlights, you have rather a unique upbringing. Can you amplify that? Yes, I did. Um, And I guess I would, the basic thing I would say is that my mom, uh, I mean, I could have spun it very differently. I could have made her just a post sixties, uh, free spirit. Um, but she was okay. I had talked to her about being truthful and honest about my, my childhood and how I was raised. But basically my mom had me at 21. She's from England. She, she divorced my dad when being married and living in America didn't uh, meet her expectations. And she was, uh, she was very, um, I thought fearless and brave. What she was, was pretty reckless and irresponsible. Um, I was kind of left to raise myself. My earliest memory 
uh, not as an event, but as a feeling, was the sense that I needed to be okay. That if I wasn't okay, she wouldn't be okay. And the whole precarious thing of our relationship and my my childhood would would fall into the the abyss. So I I very much felt like I always had to be okay. I carried that with me most of my life. Now, wait, do we, does that mean you were faking being okay or you find a oh, way yeah. to make yourself be okay? Both, both. You just, you're a kid, you figure it out, you know. Uh, it, it meant when, it meant because there was no other kids around, it meant being able to uh, amuse myself, entertain myself. Uh, it meant... You know, I had no brothers and sisters, an only child. I learned how to read. I would read books. I was just on my own a lot. Um, and when I got to be a certain age, my dad was not present in my life. I think it was very painful. It's not conscious when you're a kid. You know, I just felt like I don't think I felt like I mattered very much to him. And uh, I, um, I just kind of got... Very, uh, as soon as I found something that made me feel like I could fit in, which was drinking, and I started drinking at 12, and I found a, a group of misfits that I could kind of fit in with. And once I started feeling like I fit in a little bit, um, that was that was how I coped. Okay. I know we didn't want to go into that right away, but I got a little— Okay, but you're, you say your mother went to college. Yeah, my mother was a UT student. It took her 12 years to get her degree. She uh, was raising me by herself. She had a boyfriend she was obsessed with for about a decade who um, really wouldn't give me the time of day. So it was kind of dysfunctional. I just wanted attention from him, never got it. She was obsessed with him. I felt very, very abandoned and alone and that my job was to take care of myself. That's what I felt. And did your mother graduate from college? Yes, she did. So, so do you think that's an inspiration for you? I think that acad the academic life has always been something that I uh, valued. My dad was a, a professor of economics, even though he wasn't a big part of my life. I was proud of him because that's how he got out of Lubbock, Texas, and how he kind of separated himself from... Uh, the poverty that he grew up with was through education. And school was just something, until it became something where socially it was too painful, it was something I enjoyed. I enjoyed excelling at it. I enjoyed approval, and I enjoyed learning. So before you turned 12 and you took a left-field uh, turn, um, did you, so you did well in school? Were you popular? Did you have friends? I was... Um, I was a straight-A student and uh, very advanced in, in, in terms of, like, the curriculum, but I felt like a, an outsider. It wasn't so bad at first because my mom, she would work at a job for, like, a year or two, save up her meager retirement, and we'd go to England and spend a couple of months. And when the money ran out, we'd come home, and we'd live in a new apartment, and I'd go to a new school. So I was always the new kid. But in the fifth grade, she decided she wanted to give me something better. And that's when it really got bad, because she moved to this this very kind of 
lower middle class neighborhood where everyone was quite conventional. And it was 1970, 71. The, we just stuck out like sore thumbs. And that's not what you want to do when you're 11. You don't want to stick out. But we really did. And um, uh, I remember being embarrassed. She would pull up in her sports car in her mini dress, and I would be embarrassed. Uh, I just wanted to be like everybody else, and it, w- it wasn't going to happen. It just was not going to happen. So I was kind of uh, a mess waiting to happen. And you talked about your mother in the book. How does your mother feel about the book? Because you're very honest in the book. She's really – I've always been her most vicarious pride of uh, and proof that she didn't mess everything up. Um, she feels – very very proud of me i she i didn't want her to be the the villain of the story i i mean i really tried to adhere to the conventions of storytelling in that there was an arc there was a protagonist that was me that overcame obstacles and came out a changed person i knew i knew the conventions of storytelling enough to want that but i didn't want that villain in my story. And I asked her about everything um, before I would write about it. I said, I'm going to write about, you know, us dating the drug dealers. I'm going to write about you having an affair with a a friend of mine, a teenage boy. I'm going to write about this. And uh, is that okay? Is that okay with you? Because I wasn't going to do anything hurtful. If she said it's not okay, I wouldn't have done it. And oddly, or ironically, her saying yes and giving permission gave me a lens to see all this stuff and through a different point of view. Because as I'm writing it, you're, I'm appalled. Like, how could she do this? How could she do this? I'm a mom. I can't imagine that. But um, it made me realize that it was more imp- important to her that I tell my story and tell it truthfully and honestly than it was for her to be depicted as some idealized great mom. And that made me realize how even though some big pillars of parenting were missing, i.e. guidance and boundaries, actual parenting, I realized that I had gotten support and I had gotten love. And uh, she said it's painful for her to read. It's painful. But she said something funny the other day. She, again, she said it was so painful. I thought I'd done a really good job until I read oh. that. <laughs> so, uh, was there anything you intentionally left out about the childhood? No, about your mother. Uh, no, I I pretty much told most of that stuff. I mean, yeah, I think I I think I hit on all the big ones. Okay, so what changes when you're twelve? You're in this new neighborhood. How do you fall in with a bad crowd? Shall we say? Well, I I remember the first time I I drank and it was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill and I was retching I was practically throwing up every time I took a, a, a gulp of it but it was an instantaneous I, like why on earth you would continue doing something that was making you sick to your stomach but it seemed like instantly it was doing something to my the way I felt and it made me feel like things were okay and I started drinking uh, with a with a quite a I drank like an amateur, but I drank um, from that moment on and smoking and um, it gave me there was a small group of misfits and once you it was never going to fit in with the normal kids ever 
no way. That was never going to happen. So having that little circle of people um, that also smoke and, and got high and, and drank, that was kind of became the thing. And then I didn't care about school. For the first time, I got a C, you know, and I didn't care. And, okay, did you perceive smoking and drinking as being bad things? Well, my mom smoked, so I, I when I was a kid, I would always like – like, you know, rant at her to quit smoking, quit smoking. Um, but yeah, one, once I did think it was bad. Yeah, it was bad because we were, we were across the street. We were considered, you know, juveniles and, and we thought anybody that, that didn't drink or, or smoke pot was a narc. We called them narcs. And, um, yeah, I, I, I knew it was bad, but that was, that I wanted to be bad at that point because being bad meant I was accepted and I had friends. Did was being bad, did that give you further attention from your mother? No. No. My mama, uh, she didn't know what I was doing. And when she found out, and the way she found out was I I passed out in someone's front yard and a police cruiser found me and drove me home and came to the door. And I they stood there at the front door when my mom answered and I crawled through the door and even that didn't cause a lecture. I mean, the only thing she said was, I hope you've learned your lesson. And the, <laughs> the, the lesson was like about getting drunk because my mom wasn't a drinker. I think that was what she thought the lesson was. But um, uh, no, there was no punishment ever. I was never punished ever. Okay. So does the school notice that you're taking a left turn? No. So you're no. basically out there on your own. So- you also, and this is really in the book, along with drinking and smoking comes some sexual experiences. Yeah. I've been really emotional lately, so I'm going to try hard not to like start blubbering because things are a little raw just because of everything. So I'm going to try not to do that, but some things are... So for some time, one of my most distinctive memories uh, and unpleasant things was the fact that uh, a young boy when I was when I was um, very young, I guess twelve, I must have been twelve, and he kind of cornered me. I was at uh, his sister was my friend. He cornered me. Uh, he paid attention to me. As I wrote in the book, I I would go over there trying to avoid him, but get his attention at the same time. And it was just a matter of time before he said he loved me and wanted to be with me and wanted to be the first person and kind of just went at it with me, pushed, pulled my pants down, and I didn't know what was happening. I had no idea what he was doing or if we did it. I thought maybe we had done it. Regardless, he, when that event was over, he went and told, like, everybody in the school, everybody. And the next day, everyone was talking about me and pointing at me and, and laughing and other guys, guys were coming up to me or yelling things at me. And I wrote about it in the book and it's ex extremely painful. I went to my mom in tears and I told her what had happened. <laughs> and this is, this is not any exaggeration. My mom said, you didn't do anything wrong. You did it with the wrong person. And her reason for saying that was that she didn't want me to be hung up about sex. She didn't want me to think like, oh, 
uh, I can't have sex anymore. And she, I mean, it was just her intention was okay. It was pretty pure as an intention, but it was just placing adult concerns on a child. You know, it's like maybe if I'd been 25, she would be worried about me not being hung up on sex, but to not be worried about your little girl. So it was really painful. It really, I really amped up the, um, the drinking and stuff after that. Well, I just know anybody in high school, they would label people truly or falsely, and everybody would know it'd be very painful for the individual involved. It was extraordinarily painful. And especially because I had I had friends that were guys and then they would I thought they were friends and then they would tell people that they had had sex with me and they hadn't or they would corner me and try to have sex and I would I would fight them off and and run off but they would say it happened anyway. So it, it was probably the most painful time of my entire life. I took my daughter 10 years ago to see where I grew up and I I drove with her to that where we lived when this happened and the school I went to and even my daughter said I don't like it here. I don't like it here. This makes me very this this is a bad place. Okay, so okay, what do you tell your daughter about sex? Well, she has a very different childhood than mine in in the era. I mean, it's very different than the 70s. I mean, as 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 terrible as some of this sounds, you have to be of a certain age to understand what the 70s were like and coming right after the free love uh, era of the 60s. And it was very, there was a lot of debauchery and openness um, without the without the freeness, you know. Um, so... It's kind of like it was a very different era. I haven't, I haven't had to. Uh, I mean, I've talked to her about what happened to me a little bit. It makes her very sad. You know, my, we're really close, and my daughter's really kind of protective of me. And the idea of me being hurt or being treated badly upsets her a lot. So, now, how old is she today? Seventeen. Has she read the book? She's only read parts of it, and she's avoided those parts. She's read some of the other things, and uh, she's really proud. I think she'll read it when she's ready. I don't think she's she's always been very good at self-regulating herself in terms of knowing what she's ready for. So um, I'm just letting her take the lead on it. And where is she on the continuum between wild and crazy and book smart and, you know, nerd? What kind of kid is she? She's... Uh, amazing she's all she is thinking about is going to college and where she wants to go and how to make sure her applications are great and she's uh she has admitted to trying alcohol a couple times and says it's not her thing and she's never known me to drink or smoke i mean i i've been sober 31 years so uh but I, I've always, I, I've planted my little seeds here and there. Like if, if we are somewhere and somebody's like obnoxiously drunk, I kind of can just go, oh, that's what happens sometimes if you can't handle your liquor. You know, I just try to get it in when I can. Let her make her own judgments. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah Yeah Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now since it's in the book and you mentioned it earlier, ultimately you do get pregnant at 12. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so after that horrible event where pretty much my my course was charted, uh, I think the way I said in the book, it was like the stories he told started becoming the story of my life. Uh, even though there was not any truth. And some older boys started coming around to our house. My mom worked. I was a latchkey kid. My mom was beautiful. And there was just some, we started being kind of a novelty, like the wild girl with the beautiful mom. And she's not home in the day. So teenage boys much older than me started hanging around. Um, One of them would bring that would bring records over and I wrote in the book like bonding over music and and bands is where I really started feeling like I was sh- connecting with people that was the first time nothing else had ever connected me with people of my own age or around my own age so um one guy he he we just had sex and it it was so painful 
that I realized that the first time that the guy hadn't even done anything, that he'd basically just poked around. Cause, and I'm like, I mean, even at that age, I'm like, really? Like, I've had to listen to this shit all year long and, uh, and nothing even happened. So that was uh, just ridiculous. But it turns out that first time that it did work and I did have sex, I was very unlucky and, and very fertile and got pregnant and found out within a few months. And this was 1971. Uh, it was two years before Roe v. Wade. We tried to uh, figure out a way to get this pregnancy aborted and couldn't do it in Austin. My mom spoke to some doctors. They said there was a clinic in California, and that became my first trip to California uh, to to have an abortion. And I was 12 years old. And I wrote about it, I think, pretty gritty, real uh, terms. And, uh, and it's hard. I, I was n nervous about writing about abortion. It's such a, it's such a polarized issue to, if I could have, if I'd written about it in the eighties, it would have been like no big deal. But now you just say the word and it's like, you know, I'm probably going to get like a zillion, uh, messages about being a baby killer or something. So it was hard. It was scary to write about it. But uh, having an abortion at that age, obviously, a lot of uh, things happen to you at a young age, a little different from the average citizen. Uh, did it, how emotionally did it affect you having an abortion or it was all such a crazy time? It was all mixed together. I, by that time, I was very uh, adept at not feeling my feelings. So what I saw it as was a problem that had to go away. That was my my most uh, driving sense about it was just that I just want this problem to go away. I, there was a Planned Parenthood social worker. She told my mom, she asked me how I felt about it. And I just said, I want to, I want to deal with it. That's all I said. And she told my mom, I was obviously repressing my feelings and, you know, yeah, of course I was repressing my feelings. That's like whatever it took to survive and be okay was what, what I did, and um, when I what I remember more than anything was the relief, the relief after because I, I was put under. I went under general anesthesia, and when I came out of it, there was that glorious moment where I was a clean slate and remembered nothing, and then I remembered everything, and that was quickly uh, just uh, I was washed over with this enormous relief that this horrible problem horrible problem. I mean, I had never heard of an abortion. I didn't know anybody that else I knew. I didn't, it's not like my girlfriends and I were sitting around talking about having sex. I didn't really have any girlfriends. And the ones I did have, I don't think were, were doing that. So I, I was really glad it was over with. And I went on the pill from 12. I was on the pill. And now you mentioned that there was a time when your mother was dating a friend and then when you were both dating the drug dealers. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I had one one of my good friends. Um, would, he, he was somebody I felt really happy about. Uh, and we connected on Facebook not too long ago. And, and I said, what do you remember from that time? And, and he said, I remember you were funny as shit. You were so funny. And then I said, 
uh, I know what happened with you and my mom, and he just ignored it. He just ignored it. He wouldn't wouldn't talk about it, because what the deal is, my mom had uh, an affair with this guy. I had no idea at the time. I have, I cannot even imagine how it started or how it happened. In in the book, I kind of pieced together that it probably started when I went to visit my dad. Um, when I came back, they were hanging out together, and and. It kind of crossed my mind, like, why would my friend and my mom be hanging out without me being there? And I have to say, she was smoking pot by then with me and my friends. My mom was smoking pot with me and my friends. And um, she didn't tell me about this affair until my 20s. And we were high. We were high on drugs. We were like, nin, 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 like talking like you do on an all-nighter. And she said, you know, well, you know, I had an affair with James. It's a pseudonym. And I said, and I was shocked. But at that point, I'm still in my 20s. And as I wrote in my book, like, she was my pal. Like, you don't get mad at your pal for having an affair with your other pal. And it came up again when in, in sobriety, and I think I brought it up. And then it came up again. And the cool thing about writing a memoir is that I get the luxury of sometimes going into the present and being able to write with the the reflection and the insight. And there's this scene in the book where I'm saying to my mom, because I'm looking at my daughter, and I'm, I'm like, going, I said, what were you thinking? It's just the enormity of it really sunk in from writing about it was and I said, I could have been taken away and put in foster care. You know, I always say, oh, my childhood was crazy, but at least I was in foster care or, or beaten with a broom or locked in the closet. But it could have happened. I could have been put in foster care. And this realization was very enormous. It was, it was profound. And I said, what were you thinking? You, you, had, you were smoking pot with us. You could have been thrown in jail. You had an affair. You could have been charged with a statutory rape. What were you thinking? And I got to write that scene in my book because as I was questioning her this, I realized that I was wanting her to say, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, it was wrong. I made a mistake. But she and, didn't. No, she didn't. She didn't. She's a deflector. Okay, then what about the uh, drug dealers that were dating? That was a, a, a happy period. Um, my mom met a, a young drug dealer, our, our, our closest friends. By this time, I'm out of public school. Uh, we're done. We, we, we don't fit into this scenario at all. My mom found a, a, a commune, a hippie commune that had an uncredited school. So I'm going there. I'm For the first time, I'm happy as can be. Uh, you can do whatever you want at this school, and you can learn whatever you want. Most kids want to learn, so it's not a disaster. Um, and I, I learned guitar there. So, but I'm doing this by the day, but in, in the evenings, we're spending time with this couple and they're drug dealers. And I think they're fabulous. They love me. They love my mom. They live in a fancy house. Um, and one of their friends, one of their dealer friends started dating my mom. He was a young 24 year old. He was an escapee from Leavenworth prison. He was a dope dealer and a biker and a junkie and charismatic and kind of wild and fun. And it was exciting to know him and these people. And he's the first person that brought an electric guitar and an amp into my house. He's the person that showed me uh, the very first time I plugged a guitar into an amp was to this guy. So I think of him with very warm feelings. Um, but one day, 
his friend, his partner pulled up, a 36-year-old, I'm 15, and uh, I started an affair with him. My mom's with the other guy. And I write about this time because it really felt like um, we, she was my best friend at that point in time. And it was it was really being lifted out of a place where, you know, we just, my mom had such a, a mindset of the rules don't apply to her. Uh, she doesn't, she's much more forward thinking and much more out of the box and these straight people in this neighborhood or this convention, the, the, the rules don't apply to my mom still to this day. So um, she loved, you know, having these kind of counterculture. And when I say drug dealers, I mean, I'm talking big time, like flying private jets around with kilos of uh, of pot and, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. And it was, it was made of a, on a major scale. So yeah, that happened. And, and when I write that... about this, I try not to do it in a sensational way. It's just, it's, it's pretty matter of fact. It just But you happened. do, though. It's not sensationalized in the book. And Okay, let's get a couple of things down. At what point do you, how old are you when you stop living with your mother? Um, I moved out from her probably at age 17. And what'd you and, do for, uh, for money to find a place? What's that? What'd you do for money for rent? Oh, I got jobs. I, I got jobs from, I. we were poor. If I wanted anything, I had to get a job and work for it. So I had been, I was babysitting when I was nine years old for money to buy the toys I wanted. I I had started, um, I started working, um, what was my first job? I wrote about it. But anyway, I, the smartest thing I did was take the, the United States Civil Service exam, and I could get jobs at, at um, uh, the, the Census Bureau, the IRS. They had, they had a, a center in Austin, so I was getting well-paid. I worked in a beer distributing, distribution um, warehouse. Um, I just I was working. I, I was making money. Okay. So when I moved out from her, I was working at a health spa. Okay, so was there always music in your household? Or how there, did you get turned on to music? Music was was not a big part. We didn't even have a stereo until I got one. But what it was was like the jukeboxes, uh, the TV shows, um, the, the table jukeboxes at the coffee shop, um, and once I got, and it was in school too, and the radio, I was just your average, you know, and I didn't have brothers or sisters like bringing records home and stuff. So I really was dependent on the radio. One of my favorite stories was writing about how when I heard Cream, Sunshine of Your Love in, in Lubbock, Texas, I was sent there for the summer and my 16-year-old cousin was playing this song and it was the first time I had realized that music elicited a response that was um, quite different than what I was used to, more pop music and singing along and feeling uplifted. And this was a more primal response and it it kind of instilled in me a, a real love of, of kind of bluesy rock for for. For, from then on but um, music had just always been there for this just like most people I think it it 
it soothed me. It took me out of myself. And when there was rock stars that I looked up to, that was key because, you know, I'm in a, in this place where I don't fit in and there's no way I'm going to fit in. And then I would see David Bowie or, or Mark Bolin or, and I would just go, there's no way these guys would fit in either. And it just, it, it felt like, it felt like it was uh, evidence that there was a world away from where I was. So between music and then my mom kind of carting me off to England every couple of years or so, I, I really held on tight to that this was temporary. This was a temporary place. This horrible, pa- painful uh, adolescence and these mean, disgusting, terrible people. And they really were. They were bad people, bad kids. Um were temporary, and music was was how I was going to, once I started finding music as being a musician, I was like, this is how I'm going to get, put as much mileage between me and this circumstances as I can. Now, they teach you how to play guitar at the alternative school. At what point do you say, hey, I want to play guitar, I want to form a band? Well, I didn't think of it until I, I was drawn to music from a young age, I mean, I, I, I felt a pull. I, I joined the orchestra. I had taken piano lessons. But um, when I started playing guitar, it, it felt like the right instrument, but it didn't occur to me that I could be in a band. I had never seen a woman in a band other than being a, a rock singer like Janis Joplin. Or I think in Austin, we had a, we had a, a great, uh, Marsha Ball was a, from New Orleans, a great keyboard player. But other than her, I'd never seen women in bands playing electric instruments or drums or anything and just didn't think it was done. Um, it was going to England with my mom. I was I was uh, 14 and there's three channels on the BBC and uh, Top of the Pops came on and Susie Quattro was on. And it literally was a life-changing, life-defining moment to see her. It was like, oh, Okay, and uh, this is this is what this is what I wanted. From that moment, I knew I wanted to do music. I knew I wanted to have a band, and I wanted to have a band with other gals like me. I wanted it to be, and part of that was because I hadn't seen anyone else doing it, and I I wanted to do something extraordinary. I wanted to feel like I I mattered and that I had value because I didn't feel like that inside. And doing something extraordinary seemed like the way to do it. And I thought, I'm going to be the best guitar player ever. It's going to be, it sounds so silly now, but I I was like, there's going to be Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Kathy Valentine. That's what I thought. And uh, so I was really excited after I saw Susie and had that become very crystal clear what what I was meant to do in life. And so what were the uh, steps you took to achieve that? Uh, I came back and I pretty much twisted my best friend's arm into becoming a drummer. And I was still at my uh, commune school and there was other kids that played. So we put together a band right away and we got access to playing right away because the school was dirt poor and always was having benefits and local Austin bands would play at the benefits. So we got to do that. And uh, I was off and running. From the minute I saw Susie Quattro, I knew what I wanted to do and I was off and running. Now, you paint a picture of really seeing everybody in the clubs in Austin. 
Now, was this after seeing Susie Quattro that you felt, hey, I want to go see these musicians? What what instigated that? Well, music has always been a, a big part of Austin, you know, way before it branded itself as um, as a music city. It was just by by nature and organically one. So, um, and my mom was uh, a young either college student or, you know, kind of hip person. So I had gone around to certain places. There was, you know, there was a lot of music around in the clubs, but it was really lax. Once once I started wanting to kind of go out and see bands, I was doing that, I would say probably from the age of um, 16. 16, I was going to clubs and uh, really, really grateful for what I got to be exposed to in Austin and the the variety and the spectrum of music and just how how lax it was. I think they just figured you wouldn't be there if you shouldn't be. And also the Armadillo World Headquarters was like this amazing venue. And my one of my mom's friends worked there. So we would go all the time. They had a big beer garden and then it would be easy just to kind of go wander in. They had concerts all the time. Uh, huge variety. I mean, they might have Captain Beefheart one night, and then they'd have the new writers of the Purple Sage the next night. And I didn't even know what I was going to see half the time, but I had access because of my mom's friend. So uh, it was just, it was really great. It was really, really great to to see so such a variety of music and to be a musician, you know, it had a huge effect. Uh, give us the arc of your time in Austin playing. So you had bands. Were they playing gigs? Were you making any money? Um, well, after starting that first band at, at Greenbrier School, I decided, number one, I was tired of going to school because by that I was 16. Uh, a lot of the older kids were moving on anyway, and it meant getting up really early to go to school. And I was going out and staying out late. So I stopped doing that, started going to college at age, age 16. I lied to get into college. I just said that I had was a high school graduate. It took them two years to figure it out that I wasn't. So I had my college classes. I, I had my first car and I had my friend that I had met in the same school, Greenbrier, she and I were, we started having bands and we, we just networked. We went out and we, we started, we found a, a female bass player. I couldn't believe it. And because we were a trio, we decided we were going to be like ZZ Top. Um, ZZ Top was, that was Texas's um, New York Dolls or Iggy. And that was our regional, you know, cool band was ZZ Top. And uh, so our first songs were ZZ Top songs, you know. Um, I had been practicing fiendishly from the minute I learned guitar. I mean, I I remember my first goal was to be up in the pantheon of guitar greats. So I I practiced like crazy. I had a handicap because I'm left-handed. And I played like a right-handed person. So my right hand was never going to have the, the technical finesse of, of a right-handed person. But I could play Chuck Berry chords great and play like, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash and all that stuff really well. I had the left hand down, down cold. So we're doing ZZ Top songs and um, a few other covers. And guys are in, in Austin, musicians are 
really supportive. And this was a pattern that emerged when I'd never thought about this. Um, but once I was writing the book, I started seeing this pattern come out where the musicians, the guys were so supportive. There was no condescension, whether it was a, a virtuoso like Eric Johnson or a rock and roller uh, guy with like, you know, playing in a covers band, they 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 were so uh, supportive and and like here, that's a crummy amp you have. Let's go get you a good amp. Or okay, you here. I've heard about this person. I I heard so and so's girlfriend plays bass, and so I had a lot of support from the guys. Really, really grateful for that. I think it could have. I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't go forward with that whole plan if I wasn't getting that kind of validation. I wouldn't be surprised if it wouldn't have crushed me, but maybe not. Maybe I was determined enough. So um, that first band was uh, a trio. Right around the same time, Doug Somm, who was one of my very favorite performers, um, he I would go see him every week. He had a, a standing gig, and it was really, there wasn't like a velvet rope or a VIP room or anything. You just, everyone was hanging out. And he found out that uh, I played guitar and he invited me to sit in with his band. So I got to play with Doug Somm on a stage and it was terrifying, but I was the most proud I'd ever been. So I felt like um, everyone was on my side, you know. I really felt like everyone was on my side and it was going to happen. And... Um, one thing led to, oh, we weren't doing professional stuff, not really. At that point, we were, sorry, I lost your, your question. We, um, we'd we get gigs, usually because of the kindness of guys saying, you guys can open for us. And maybe the first gig was like six songs. No big deal, cover songs. It wasn't really writing that many songs by that time. But then my mom wants to go to England again. So at that point, I decided this is where I'm going to make it, is in England. And I'm 17 and go off to England join a band there um don't while while i'm there punk rock is happening and i start getting hip to punk rock i, I didn't know about the precursors here in america I, I was still into my zz top and my rolling stones and stuff i i wasn't i wasn't following any of of the early uh I didn't know who the MC5 were. I didn't know who the New York Dolls were. I didn't know who John Cale was. Uh, I wasn't real big into Lou Reed or the Velvet Underground except for the radio hits. So I didn't have any pathway to punk rock till I was in Austin. I mean, till Lon in London, sorry. And um, when I got kicked out of that band due to a stomachache and them finding someone way better than me, it was, again, a crystal moment. It was like, aha, not only... Do I not have to play as good as Jeff Beck to start a band and practice for the next, you know, three years, six hours a day and be like really proficient, proficient? I can do this now. I can do this now. And I went back to Austin, said, I'm going to start the first punk band in Austin. And that's what I did. And how was the reception? It was uh, blew people's minds. Uh, we quickly we started a scene, and and other bands came quickly in our wake. Uh, I started that band. The first gig was in January, two weeks after seeing the Sex Pistols at Randy's Rodeo. Uh, did our first gig, and by August we were moving to L.A. because we were convinced we were going to make it. Um, in that time, I had also seen the Runaways who I 
for the first time saw that there was, this is before I went to England, you know, I saw, oh, there's other girls my age that are doing this. It, I started feeling this urgency, like I'm not the first one. I'm not the only one. Uh, this, this, I got to go somewhere else to really make this happen. So uh, getting to LA and taking the violators, which we thought we were going to make it in the, in the business, you know. But you that paint quite a really dreary, upsetting picture of moving to L.A. You're not 21. A friend moves in with a friend. They go to clubs. You're left out. You have some really rat hole apartment in Hollywood. Uh, what was going through your mind then? It was misery. Um, for one thing, the girl that, that I moved out there with, there was three of us in the band. And one was very responsible, Carla Olson, and she uh, wasn't going to move till she had a job because she's a grown-up and I'm a kid still. I'm a kid till I'm 30, basically. So just we'll just take that for <laughs> an assumption. And um, so she wasn't going to move till, move till she has a job. My, my very best friend who I'd started playing with, uh, who I'd been in all my bands with, she basically abandoned me. She had a fake ID. Uh, she had a better apartment she could hang out in. And I was incredibly lonely, um, very poor. I, I have letters. I've seen letters that I wrote to my mom begging her for $40, um, probably not getting it. Um, the The thing that, that came to me in that time was songs. That was the first time I pulled out my guitar. And I had written a couple of stupid songs, but this was the first time I pulled out my guitar and wrote a song because I needed to express like the the external and internal uh, feelings that I was having. And I was bored. You know, I didn't I didn't have a TV. I couldn't go out. I didn't have any friends. Uh, didn't know anybody. So it was actually a really a key moment to, to discover songwriting in that time. But what was going through my mind was I was very angry. I was resentful at my friend. And I also have like little comic strips that I would write. Like I would write these like these terrible like little comic strips about me, you know, me saying terrible things and drawing these little pictures of, I mean, I was really angry, really angry at her. I, it was, I think the first time I really felt betrayed and abandoned. So you're there and how long do you ever think about giving up? God, no, uh, that, that did never occurred to me. Everything was just a matter of time. And, when Carla came out, you know, she's got a good job. She, we get a good apartment and then I've got a mate. I was so reliant on having like that, that partner. I don't know if I was capable on my own. It's like I needed a sidekick or not a sidekick. That's the, that's a, de, a demeaning term. It's, I needed a partner. I felt like I couldn't do it on my own. And starting with Marilyn, the first person I had a band with, it, it set up a pattern that I was pretty much stuck with most of my life, which was, you know, maybe either not thinking I could do it on my own, or maybe just feeling like two people. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I, I, I needed that. I, I don't know how far oh, I would have okay. gone on my own. Okay, from the moment we moved to LA, before the holiday gig with the Go-Go's, how long a period of time is that? Moved to L.A. in um, August of 
78, and I'm not in the Go-Go's. I don't play my first gig until uh, eight, nine, New Year's Eve 1980. So for two years, I'm in the Textones. Okay, and, and you're surviving on what financially? I have a, jo- I have a job. I got a job at a, at a Transamerica Real Estate Tax Service on uh, Beverly and 3rd, right across from where the Beverly Center is now. And it was an office job, and Carla let me borrow her nice clothes so I could turn up to my office job. And um, at night, we'd go to the Capitol Records um Capitol Records Swap Meet, which is where everyone hung out and where you met musicians, and it was it was like uh, it was it was the the place to be. We did that every month. We'd drive around and 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 the car with a six pack of beer, listening to Rodney on the Rock. We were just like so keen to to make it and find out where we fit in this incredible music scene. This uh, organic amazing music scene that just had every band had this character and individuality and it it really echoed what I'd grown up with in Austin where I was used to country honk and Tejano bands and blues bands and rock and roll bands and Cosmic Cowboy, I was like all that stuff. And then in, in LA, there's rockabilly bands and there's the blasters and the the kind of scrappier punk bands and the artsy punk bands and the new wave skinny tie guys and the power pop bands there was so many so much good music and we just i couldn't wait to to be part of it could not wait okay so in those two years you're optimistic oh yeah okay so you get the call to sub for the go-go's because their bass player can't do it do you see this as a giant opportunity or you say well this is just something to do well, it was um, what happened was I had quit the Textones because after uh, a, over a year, maybe a year and a half, almost two years, I felt like we weren't moving up the ranks as quickly as like the Plimsolls were and other bands that seemed to be like the Knack and uh, 2020. All the bands that were our peers were seemed to be moving forward and we weren't. And we had opportunities, cool things happen. I mean, LA was like, this this constant carrot dangling in front of you, and it was just around the corner, and anything could happen, and sometimes anything did happen. But I just thought, nah, it started to feel like it was two bands in one. So I had quit. I was out of the Textones, and it was the first time since I'd been sixteen, really. And I say that like it's some lifetime, but it feels like a lifetime. Back then, yeah. <laughs> it was the first time in, in four years that I hadn't been in a band and I was really at loose ends and I didn't have that partner that I had relied on. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? Well, Phil Seymour is going to do my song and I'll just do something and I'll put a, a new band together. But I was kind of like for the first time a little bit like, well, what's going to happen here? And that's when I ran into Charlotte from the Go-Go's and I was at the Whiskey and she um, approached me and I knew who the Go-Go's were. I, they were popular by then. They they had I, the first time I saw them, I dismissed them. I thought they were amateurs. Uh, I wasn't mean about it. I, I like seeing women in bands, but I just said they got a ways to go. I thought I was a seasoned pro. Uh, fast forward a year and a half later, they've played probably, you know, at least 100 gigs. Uh, and they've gone to England and they've got a drummer that kicks ass. And they're a very different band. So I'm aware that they're not the same band that I kind of dismissed when I first got there. 
But um, when when Charlotte asked me and she approached me, they knew who I was, and she just said, D- "Could you play bass? I know you play guitar, but do you, could you play bass? Do you play bass? Because um, our bass player is sick, and we have some shows lined up. And man, did they ever! They had four nights, two shows a night at the Whiskey, happening in six days. I mean, it was six days. Oh, not even six days. Yeah, yeah, six days. So. Like when I look back, it's kind of crazy that they had waited that long to start getting their sub lined up. But at the at that moment, it was like, here's something to do. This will be cool. They're popular. This will, yeah, I can play bass. I'll do this. So I don't think it was like this is my destiny right away. But it very quickly it became a band I wanted to join, and that happened as I learned the songs because even though I knew who they were and I'd watched them take a, a big step. Mo- um, upwardly mobile step in in their musicianship. I wasn't. I didn't go to all their gigs. I didn't know what their set was or what their material was. I knew we got the beat. So I'm learning their songs, and you know I'm no dummy. I know what a good song is, and I was just like, "Geez, this band has really good songs." <laughs> and the more I started learning them and and finding my way around the bass and going, "Hey, this is pretty cool. I can, I can." I can play bass the way I want to play. I played it like it was a guitar. I used my pick, and I there was room to do some cool little melodic things and add to the songs. And when I walked into the first rehearsal, I just liked them. I liked the way they looked. I liked the way they dressed. I felt like I had found kindred spirits, people like me, and I wanted to be in that band from the minute from the minute I walked in that room. I thought it was. It was, I'd never wanted anything more. How did they ultimately give you the green light? Well, I think there was, uh, it's just a super, there's a, a, a very volatile and very uh, uh, tangible chemistry to the Go-Go's. It's still there. You know, if we're if we in a room together, the, 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 the air changes. I mean, we, we all change a little and we become this other entity. And it, it was evident from the beginning. There was a chemistry. But also, I, I'm a good musician. I played really well. And I, you know, I, I was aware of feel and, 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 and I just kind of instinctively knew how to do really good at that job. And um, they liked me. They liked me, and as as happens in bands, you know, they they were at a bit of a crossroads with their bass player. She was a find a founding member, but I think there had been some. Um, I think there had been a little bit of uh, strife between her and the other members. So I think I think it was just probably like when a, a couple like they don't like each other anymore, but then somebody else has to come along to give you the courage to like move on. I think it was like that. It was like I was like the the motel fling that they decided to run off with. And so how long after you played those gigs was it clear that someone was going to light the rocket for the Go-Go's? Well, it wasn't very clear at first um because even though like we start we once I was and they asked me to join within probably about 10 days the day after the the engagement ended there was a thing in the the LA Times that mentioned me and then there was a story the next day why can't the go-go's get a record deal and they mentioned me so i'm like going okay i'm in the press already with this band in association with this band it's just when are they going to ask me when are they going to ask it happened very quickly i i said i i 
want this really badly, but I want to be one of the songwriters. They were happy to have a songwriter join the band as well. Um, but then it was just back down to business. It was like doing gigs. I think two weeks later, we had a show at the Roxy. We did a show in San Diego. It was just business as usual. Our manager, Ginger, uh, oh, and the other thing was I had gone on unemployment, and as soon as I became a regular member, I found out that the Go-Go's, this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this, but the Go-Go's got $40 a week. Ginger, they had a bank account, and everybody got $40 a week, and I was getting my unemployment check, and I was living for free in Catherine Sebastian's house up on Sunset Plaza. So I thought I had arrived. Just so you understand, to me, this was, I had made it. I had made it, you know. I'm living in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, I know rock stars. I'm, I don't have to work, and I'm in a great band. So that it's done deal. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but she went out and she would report back to us. I went back to. I wish I could remember some of the people. I wish I could remember who were the the label people she was meeting with. It would be, it would be interesting to 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 uh, out some names. But anyway, she was told by all of them. We can see that the the band is popular. We can see that they have a a good following, but there's never been a successful all female band. Never been one. Pass. She has letters. She has letters where they pass. Um, so, I think we had our biggest show. It was it was just growing so quickly. And when I mean growing, this is before there's a record deal. I'm talking like Whiskey, Roxy, and then we have a gig at Perkins Palace, which is in Pasadena. And it's probably a, a thousand-seater theater. Maybe I'm wrong. but It was, it was a little big. bit bigger than that, actually. Was it? So yeah. we have this gig. And um, at the Roxy, Miles had come. Miles Copeland had come. And he started just pursuing Ginger, pursuing her. And she... she um, Went back to the labels, went back again, because she thought well, maybe it's that thing when you have one, it just takes one person right. being interested, and then they'll fall in line. But it, they still didn't. So Miles was the only only um, only hope we had. And we, we agreed to signing with IRS after going to IRS Records and meeting Jay Boberg and uh, John Guaneri and all the staff there were just... They were so earnest and and sincere and uh, loved the Go-Go's. And it wasn't like we had many choices. So we signed with Miles on April Fool's Day, 1980, and we left the next day to record our album in New York with Richard Goderer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this happens very quickly. There's a whirlwind, and actually it ends pretty quickly, too. What was it like being at the eye of the hurricane? Well, it was, you know, I talked about feeling like I'd made it when I was getting 40 bucks a week. Well, that was just this sense that I kept having over and over again on a bigger, deeper, more profound, explosive uh, way. Like, oh, we got a record deal. That I, I'd never thought about, when I thought about making it in the business, I didn't really think about what the steps were. It was just kind of making it. Um, of course, I'd seen other bands get record deals, and I knew that that was the end goal. But also just not having a freaking job was a pretty big end goal that wasn't like not being um, a musician. So um, when we got the record deal, mind blown. The biggest the biggest thing in the world to me was going to, to record in New York City. I mean, I couldn't believe I would be in a hotel room for weeks, if not months, in New York City making an album with my best friends. And I, like you said, I'd only been in the band, um, let's see, January, February, March, four months. So we were on a honeymoon. We were like newlyweds. We were, and this band, I felt like it was... It was an adolescence, you know, it wasn't a hurricane at all. It was a hurricane of, of wonder and getting, oh, I just felt like I'm getting what's mine. Finally, it felt like all the, all the crappy adolescence I didn't get to have, I got to have as a go-go um, in New York City making this amazing album. And, uh, it was one of the, the best periods of my life. I don't think I realized till I wrote about it how, just ephemeral it was. I said that wrong. But it was just like this, oh, like this great thing. I loved writing about it. I loved capturing that, uh, what it felt like. And um, 
from there, yeah, it wasn't a hurricane until uh, it just didn't stop. You know, one thing after the next, just one thing after the next for for several years. It just, you know, the first time it slowed down, I was I started that, having that like fear and loss. Like I think we took eight months off because we started having some problems. And oh my God, like eight months, like we're not touring, we're not recording an album, we're not uh, playing shows. Uh, I was lost. By that time, I was completely absorbed. Any Kathy Valentine that existed prior to being a go-go was obliterated. Um, I was lost. So I think that was when it started feeling a little bit like a hurricane, when you're lost to yourself. Right. Okay. Now, there's a lot of uh, rep about the Go-Go's, and you're really the first female band to be on the road. Supposedly, there was a lot of debauchery in the Go-Go's. There was a lot of drug use, et cetera. What was it like uh, being a member and being on the road with the band? Well, I, I figured out fairly quickly that um, that it was better to start drinking after the show uh, I was young because so it I had a I was pretty you know I hardy peasant stock and uh, I I had the constitution that could take it and I was you know 22 years old so and it was the 80s and I had been drinking for quite a while so it it was just par for the course to me it was just like you know that's what everybody does uh, they drink you know it's, if I'd been in college I would have been drinking probably just as much at 22 years old so it was just kind of the the difference was that. Uh, I didn't have it didn't interfere with what I had to do if I if I woke up in the morning yeah it might suck to go do some interviews or go to a radio station especially like those really early ones that might suck but you could still be really hungover and then fall fall into your bunk or fall into your hotel room get a nap and go on stage and have a great time and then you know rinse and repeat so uh for me, the drugs were mainly cocaine. I didn't like other drugs, and the only reason I liked cocaine is it meant that I could my capacity for drinking was was enhanced. So, I mean, if I didn't get a little buzzed from drinking, I I wasn't gonna go just for the heck of it do drugs. That that I, they were just a tool to to uh, make me a, a better alcoholic. So um, it was just kind of. I didn't see anybody doing anything different. Not in my world. That's what my friends were doing. That's what my bandmates were doing. That's what I. That's what all the other bands were doing. Guys were doing. Were so, substances yeah. a contributing factor to the uh, breakup of the Go Go's? I would say they were, but by the time it was a breakup, we had um, we had a key member who was strung out on heroin and uh, was barely functioning and was probably going to die if, if she didn't go into rehab, uh, a key creative member. And I'm talking about Charlotte, and I can say that because she's documented it herself very, very well. Um, but so that's a, a big thing. And I would say it's not so much that it was the drinking. It's just that what the drinking does, and I can only speak for myself, I was a stunted uh, emotional human being I, I had the emotional maturity of a of a 15 year old uh, you don't grow up when you when you're squishing all your feelings down and pushing them off to the side and and shoving them away that that's not how you grow up you grow up by 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 dealing with stuff and I wasn't dealing with a lot of big stuff so 
you take that factor that you're an immature person that's incapable of having empathy or compassion for for people. All I know how to do, uh, and it's a very, I'm a very lost, sad person, but how do you deal with that? You don't walk around feeling like a lost, sad person. You dial up how fun, how much fun you're having. And I was funny and I was having a good time and I was a party girl. So that's how I balanced that out and didn't face that I was uh, a sad sack, you know, basically a drunken sad sack was like, you can't be if you're just like the life of the party. So I'm emotionally stunted. I'm also um, gotten to the point where I'm motivated by two things, which is desperation and fear. And you have to understand, Bob, that this was more by this time than a, than a, the culmination of my dream to make it in the business. Sure, I wanted that. Sure, I wanted to be in a band. All I ever wanted was to be in a band. But I was trained from, I was uh, ingrained to to take care of myself. And this was how I was going to take care of myself. This is how, not only me, but I'm taking care of my mom by now. I'm paying her bills. I bought her a place to live. I'm sending her money to live off. So I'm the caretaker of her. I'm the caretaker of me. And if anything is going to threaten that my survive that's my survival i was um uh really protective of it and it's not a that's not what being in a band is about it's not like dealing with a band member who's like driven by fear and desperation to keep it and anything that threatened it like you know charlotte's got a drug problem and i'm like no, no, she's fine. She's fine. <laughs> you know, we wrote crappy songs for the next record. No, no, they're good. We only sold 500,000 of the third record. No, no, that's great. If it was the first record, we'd be happy with it. I was like this constant uh, cheerleader spinning, spinning the, the, the things to make it okay and make people laugh. It was really hard work. Hard, hard work. So, yes, they had an effect. Drugs and alcohol had an effect. But I think more than that, it's what it does to you as a person. Um, and as people, we, we didn't know how to problem solve. We didn't know how to deal with each other's feelings. We didn't know how to um, see what maybe somebody needs, like, you know, that makes them feel good about being in the band, you know. Like how, if you're in a good band and it's a chemistry and it's working and you're selling records and people dig your band, it's just crazy not to kind of make sure everybody's getting a little piece of what they need to stay wanting to do it. You know, it's crazy. Do you think the fact that you were the last addition in the band ultimately left you out when the band disintegrated? No, I wasn't left out. Gina and I were were the ones that were kicked, that were uh, devastated. She was just as devastated by me. No, I was I was um, I was as solid a band member as anybody. I mean, I was. We we started out in you know we didn't have a record deal. We started out in that van, that horrible van. I think, um, and plus I brought in a lot of musicianship and songs that, that were crucial as we went on. There were no songs, you know, when it came time to do the second record, none at all. Not only that, but I had, um, I had like a sense about the business that other people weren't thinking about. So I was the one that was, you know, kind of a pain in the ass, always saying, this isn't right, you guys, this isn't right. I don't know about this. Um, trying to make things fair, you know, 
Like, if so-and-so only has one song or a partial song, let's make that the B-side of the single so that they can get some extra money. I was always trying to be the diplomat and make it so everyone was happy. I don't think it had anything to do with it, me being the last person in the band. Because once I joined, it was the solidified lineup, and that was the chemistry. That was the chemistry more than anything else. So Jane leaves, and... Was that really the beginning of the band? Could the band have survived without Jane, really? I I don't think so, because it was based on chemistry. But at the time, everyone was so unhappy. And like I said, I couldn't couldn't fathom anything. uh, I mean, part of it was very logical. I was just like, one in a million gets to this point. You'd you'd be crazy to let this go. So as as just a... Uh, mode of survival. I'm like, maybe this will be a new chapter. I my template was the Rolling Stones. You know, I wanted to be in a band that that did 20 albums over decades that um, evolved and grew and changed. And maybe they had a dud one here and there, but or a dud single, but they always came back with something that you liked. That was my template, and I I just thought, okay, we're just this is like you know. Brian or Mick Taylor or somebody it's just a change in lineup and we, we're going to go on and it's a new chapter and um, but it was I as I wrote in the book I didn't see that that was like the thing I'd been fighting so hard to keep was had kind of splintered beyond repair right in front of my eyes I didn't I didn't realize that but it was the beginning of the end and then when uh, Belinda left and Charlotte ultimately went with her did you feel betrayed yeah, I felt betrayed because uh, we we got a new person. I moved to guitar, which was my little agenda. Once Jane left, I was like, oh, good, I can go back to guitar, which is what I should be doing because that's what I do best. And uh, so I got my little agenda in there, and we got a bass player. And uh, we played this massive concert in, in Rio called Rock in Rio to like something like 300,000 people. And I'm just like, okay, this is proof. This is proof. We, we're going to... We have a new chapter. We're going to make it. But instead, um, Charlotte hit her bottom there and ended up going into rehab. And so what I'm thinking is like, oh, good. Now we're going to have our fully functioning person back and we'll really start the the chapter. And Mike Chapman had signed on to do the fourth album, which I thought this is this is how you launch a new chapter is with Chapman producing the record. This is how you do it. To me, it was like, but there was just something about Charlotte and Belinda that they, I could, they were like, they were like talking or I don't know. I just felt like, why aren't they, why aren't they excited? Why aren't they excited about this record? Why is Charlotte not all like happy to be out of rehab and being in the band again? I mean, I was really, really immature and, and focused on myself. And so, yeah. I was. I felt really betrayed. Uh, Gina and I both did. Gina was. We were like-minded people. We we were hard workers. We'd come out there to make it in a band, and we both said when they broke up the band, we said, "This is insane." You know, go go off for a year. Go make your solo album. Go do your thing. Do what you want. But why break up the band? And the manager that was overseeing us, I was like, "Why are you letting this happen?" You know, why are you letting this happen? Just tell them to get her a solo deal. Let her go make a record. This is stupid. I just didn't understand it. Okay, so ultimately the band uh, does break up or disintegrate. You try to make it as a solo artist. 
That is not working. Mike Chapman is not ultimately interested in the demos you make. How do you handle this emotionally? I drink and do drugs and uh, have a good time and and just don't accept it. I don't. I just don't acknowledge it. I don't acknowledge anything that's painful or or frightening. And I just keep thinking it's a matter of time. It's just a matter of time and. You know, the band I put together was good. It was a good band. Um, I know what a good band is. I know what chemistry is. It wasn't our time. It's so much more that you can't even control. You can put together a super cool band with charisma and good songs and great players, but you can't put together timing and the zeitgeist of, of just being in the right place at the right time. You can't you can't make that happen. You can't make MTV put you in people's living rooms, which is what happened with the Go-Go's. The Go-Go's might not have launched if it hadn't been for MTV. You know, that was... That was that was a fluke. There's there's things you can't control. So nothing's happening, and I'm, but I just think if I'm not don't have a band, if I keep trying, if I keep trying, I keep trying, and people were believing in me. You know, I had some heavy hitters that helped me and supported me. That that kept me thinking. Okay, maybe you know maybe this. You know, whether it was Mike Chapman thinking he could do something with me, or you know somebody putting up money for for demos, or uh, you know, a, a musician, a successful musician hooking me up with players. It's like there were things happening that that always felt it's that L.A. Kool Aid. You know, you're just there thinking that it it could happen. It could happen. But meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, it's taking its toll. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm not liking myself. I'm I'm finally the the person that I've been. I've been just since I was a, a, a teenager getting stoned and drunk and f- being disliked and that person. It's like it's all there and it's all you just get to a point where I just felt like I felt beaten down. Like I can't seem to get anything going, I, but I wasn't going to stop. I was I was never going to stop. I just couldn't seem to get. But something had to change. Something had to change. So, yeah, it, it was, looking back, it was really hard. But at the time, I was just operating, operating. You know, I didn't know how to do anything else. Couldn't imagine. Is this what ultimately uh, sends you to AAA? Uh, yeah, I I think that I I woke up after a blackout. And I wasn't a blackout drinker. I, I It happened twice in my drinking. Most of the time, I would end up with a bad hangover and I certainly was very lucky that I didn't hurt somebody as a as a driver who had drank too much but there was I had a way of because it was so essential that I I couldn't imagine not drinking that I kept it as controlled as I could and I would give up for like I'm not going to drink for two weeks I'm not going to drink for a month and then I'm just gonna so it's this constant trying to control it so that I wouldn't have to stop. But one night in New York City, blackout, and I woke up and there was just like the little, the little magic uh, moment where something pierced through all of the, all of that desperation and denial and just said, you know, something's got to change and I don't know how to do it. I can't make a band happen and I, I can't make anything happen. And 
I keep screwing up, you know, I screwing up my relationship and I was screwing up opportunities and not because I was not showing up, but I just, it just wasn't happening. And I thought if I quit drinking, that's one thing, it'll change. That'll change. And if one thing changes, maybe everything will change. And okay. Right. So w- what was the year of the first uh, Go-Go's reunion? 1990. Okay, so from 1982 to 1990, do you ever have to get have to get a straight job? Nope, I didn't have a job since 1980. Okay, so you had written vacation. Were you essentially living on royalties for those ten years? No, the ro- the royalties dried up. They dried up. Uh, there was nothing, and I used to pray. I used to like pray, like, oh God. Use vacation in a commercial, this or that. I, I, and the other thing was I couldn't seem to get a publishing deal. Like everyone else in the band, like Gina, Gina, the drummer got a publishing deal. And I'm like, what the heck? Why can't I get a publishing deal? And I remember one guy, um, I went in to Warner Chapel and he's like, this is a great catalog. I'm going to give you $250,000. And I was like, like cloud nine cloud nine out of that place and and then like i didn't hear anything back and then i start calling i'm like what's going on and and they like i could hear the secretary like no he's not in and i was just like wow you know this is just like the stories you hear about so i was i was going just going crazy but what i did I had, right before the Go-Go's, this is how much I believed that the Go-Go's weren't going to break up. After that Rock in Rio concert in January of 85, I came home and I bought a house at the top of Sunset Plaza. And uh, it was $200,000, and it was the last house on the street. And um, it was all I could afford, but it was like, had this amazing view. And so I had that house. Then the band breaks up, and that's part of my my n- n- freak out is that I've got this house and I don't have a job anymore. But what I started doing was um, taking equity out of the house. First of all, I plowed through my my retirement money. We, they'd set up a little retirement fund. I plowed through all that because I'm I'm at the beginning. I'm like it's just a matter of time, and I'm spoiled, and I'm grandiose, and I'm okay. We're going to rehearse at SIR, and da 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 da, and. Oh, my God. So I just plowed through all this money. And um, then I would start refinancing my house because when I got it, like interest rates, people should take note, were like 11%. And then they started going down and I would refinance the house and I would take out 50. It never occurred to me that I was, um, you know, spending the money that I would make on the house. So that's how I lived. That's how I lived. And there was there was probably some royalties here and there. Okay, but you, in any event, you weeked it out till 1990. When they say the band is going to get together, everybody's on the same page, everybody's involved, everybody's being called? Yeah, we started... uh the we started getting in touch with each other and Belinda had been had an enormous uh, success as a solo artist uh, Charlotte was kind of her right hand person writing songs and I reached out to Charlotte and after I had four months of sobriety and um, we uh, we rekindled our friendship Gina and I had stayed friends um, Belinda uh, invited everybody to come sing on one of her records, and that was the first time we hung out. And it just felt different. It felt different to be sober, and I was very grateful to just to get to be around them because 
really, I just, I really missed it. You know, I wanted to make it in another band. I really did. But I also missed, I missed them. I missed the band. Um, the ma- Belinda's manager approached us about doing a, a, a reunion concert and everybody was on board. Even though she was still in the middle of having a, a thriving solo career, she, she was agree- she agreed. I think we all thought it had ended in a bad way and this might be a way to, um, uh, put a nicer bow around that little package. Okay, so once the band reunites in 1990, how often does it go out after that? Well, they uh, we did a tour because IRS put out a, a greatest hits record. So we, we actually did a tour in 1990, and I got to do all of the stuff that we had done. We played on the TV shows, and we played the places and whatnot, and uh, did the press and everything. So I got to do it sober, which was was really great. But then we had a falling out again, and we had a falling out that lasted f- till 1995. It had a, a lawsuit involved. It was all to do with money and songwriting royalties um, and stuff like that. So... Um, and then that got resolved, and we got back together because Ted Demi, the director, right. wanted to do a film about us. And uh, his wife reached out to us all, and I think everyone had email by that time. Email was a big help because you didn't have to, like, get on the phone. Uh, so uh, email started getting exchanged in, in 95 about talking about this possible movie. And... Once again, we kind of came back to each other. And a lot of people think, oh, they just do it for money. And the, the thing I, you know, I certainly don't mind making money with the Go-Go's anytime. But that's really not what brings us back together. Because let's face it, Belinda doesn't need the money. So she can choose whether the Go-Go's work or not. It's really, it's really within her power. And she does not need the money uh, when she is open to it. That's when we play. It's really been a lot of people think that's what happens. But from 95 up until uh, the recent past, you know, we we played pretty regularly. Okay, so since 1990 or so, you survived on income from the Go-Go's primarily live touring you personally. Well, I mean, I had really cheap rent because here's the deal. I'm, <laughs> you know, I was living in the house that I was going to marry, uh, get married and be in. And um, when we broke up, the house had gone down in value for the, the, the crash. And uh, so I was just paying rent. I got some roommates. I mean, I drove an old El Dorado and I was paying 400 bucks a month. You know, I didn't need a lot of money. I really didn't need, and I made some good investments. That's another thing. Uh, I finally took my little nest egg and made, made a couple of good investments. And, um, um, you know, I just, I cut my, my, what do they say? I cut my cloth to fit my scissors or whatever the heck that thing is. I, I lived. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's say right now you never earned another dollar. Do you have enough money to get to the end? I don't, I don't, depends what kind of end you want. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could go live. I'd like more. I would like more, but I think so. I think I do because I, I'm pretty well invested, and, and uh, I lost some money in this last crash, but my house went up in value, so it kind of went up and down. Uh, some years, vacation just brings in a, a, a windfall, you know, some years. And, uh, you know, 
I've been really blessed. You know, I, I had a, a wonderful marriage for seven years, and uh, so I don't have to worry about paying for my daughter's college because her dad, you know, is, is going to do that. So I've been really lucky. I've, I've always managed to get, even when I was poor growing up, there was always enough. I've never really worried about money too much. I, I don't, I just don't think about it that much. I just, there always seems to be enough. And if there's not, I just kind of scale down. I mean, for years, like I said, I drove an old, I, I drove an old Eldorado and I lived in a cool little house with cheap rent and I was happy. Okay. You know? Now, there was this lawsuit where they seemed to want to kick you out of the BN one more time in the last decade. What was that yes. about? What was that about? That started, okay, I, I feel like there should be a little context that nobody really thinks about. It, it, it's been, people reduce it down to this thing like she she quit and sued the band, and that's really not the story. Uh Basically, there had been a lot of dysfunction and 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 strife and and resentment, and other people had been in the hot seat and had been it had been discussed to kick other people out. And I'm not going to go into to who and names and what, but but I I was not the first person. I was just the one that it actually worked on. So what happened was I uh, a tour and they were a couple of people were mad at me anyway because I had done this Twitter memoir and they didn't like it. I took it down. I cried. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. Very sincere. I don't mean to rush over it like like it was meaningless. It was a horrible time. Uh, but I thought it was. I thought it was water under the bridge, but it wasn't. Sometimes people, you know, didn't take much to pick the scab off, and then it's a, a gaping wound again. So when I broke my wrist and had to miss a tour, uh, I got on the hot seat. Well, just stop one second. Was yeah, yeah. the Was the corporation, all these bands are incorporated, such that even though you did not go on the road, did you share in any of the revenue? I'm not at, I'm not at liberty to disclose that. Uh, okay. So in any event, you break your wrist, you don't go on uh, out on the road, continue. Well well the when I broke my wrist, yeah, anytime somebody was out for for and it had happened a few times when I was pregnant, someone took my place for a, a handful of shows when Charlotte was pregnant, uh, Vicky Peterson from the Bangles. So we had precedent that if you couldn't perform, you got your equal share as as a member of the corporation and I could just freaking uh, fall down and worship at the business manager's feet that set up that corporation. So I uh, thank God we had a save me. But um, so we had a precedent. I've, I fall, break my wrist. The precedent's in place where the tour goes on without me. And yes, I'm getting my equal share. You you pay your substitute out of your equal share. What what happened, though, was the being away and out of the picture and the dysfunction and the, the demonizing. And by from August to January, I was completely cut out and uh, uh, nobody would speak to me. And I knew it was bad. Um, fortunately, my, my ex-husband is also my best friend is a litigation attorney. And I, I, I said from the, the minute it started happening, I said, something bad is happening. You know, uh, I think they're going to try to kick me out. So I had uh, a lot of legal advice from the beginning of, of how to conduct myself and to that would be advantageous. And when they fired me, it was kind of like, 
okay. I, I was I was really devastated and hurt that they I couldn't even go talk to everybody. And, and I kept I begged, I begged. I said, can I come and hang out and let's talk this out? And and I was rejected to do that. It, it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. But um, the thing that went wrong was to start a new corporation. Like, I would have just said, okay, you don't like me anymore. Let's figure out how to do this. You know, either either guys are going to retire soon or let's figure out how to do this in a fair way. But that isn't what happened. Uh, what happened instead was a, another corporation was 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 created and the name was licensed to that corporation so that I could uh, supposedly legally be cut out. And at that point, my legal advice was you, you don't, that's not, that's not something that is, is, uh, can be done. You know, partners can't do that to another partner. So uh, that was the, the legal action. And it was not anything that I relished doing at all. It was uh protecting 35 years of, of building a, a business interest and protecting that. So that was a horrible, but what was more horrible was, you know, having to be the subject of, of very uh, horrible, uh, the, the, the legal advice that, that the legal people they had were just hell-bent on dis destroying me. And, um, you know, luckily I had the cavalry and I, I just kind of, um, got through it, and it was painful. And I don't really like talking about this at all, as you can tell. But uh, but I will say that there was a silver lining. There was an enormous, and sometimes the best gifts come in the most hideous, disgusting, ugly packages. But I got to tell you, being home with my daughter for the next five years, from the age of nine to, to 14, or whatever it was, it was five years, nine, yeah, nine to 14, uh, was fantastic. Uh, some things happened in my life that wouldn't have happened if I had been doing that. And I'll tell you, I wasn't happy in that band at that point. I wasn't happy. And I was actually kind of glad not to be doing it. I, I felt that it was uh, a really toxic and dysfunctional band. And I was, I was glad not to be doing it, but I still liked everybody. I, I want to say that, um, there was times where I really saw who I was in that period. And I think when we, anytime we go through something that's horrible and, and terrible, sometimes, or difficult, it, that's when you really do see who you are. And, and one of the, there was a lot of things that showed me who I was in that time. And, and I ended up uh, being really proud of how I conducted myself and who I was, how I felt. Cause I didn't hate anybody. I didn't hate them. How long from the moment they went on tour without you till the lawsuit was settled? Um, the lawsuit started, like I think it was filed in, in May of, of uh, 10, 2012. We settled, I think, by 2014. They did a tour in 12. They did one in 14. I think they did, I think they did four tours. Without me. Maybe three. Three or four tours. Okay, so where does this leave you now? Does it go back to the first corporation where you are a member just like you were before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, we didn't have to go to, to, to court. We, we settled. And, right. And this, the s settling, you know, all of our corporate uh, entities were intact on settling. That's not a, that's not, um, what do they call it? Non, that's not that's not non-disclosure stuff. That's just anyone can look up a corporation. So yeah, yeah, everything was was good. 
Everything well, let, was well, good. Well, I mean, just okay. After being out of the band for four years and a number of years and having the lawsuit, did that impact your relationship with the four other girls? Well, I didn't speak to them. And then little by little, it started thawing out. Like, I think Belinda sent me an email and said she was sorry and that she wished it hadn't happened like that. And um, there was a musical that was being underway before I even uh, was was kicked out. And part of my settlement was that I would be involved, that, that, that I couldn't be cut out of that. So when there was, um, when there was anything going on with the musical, I would go and, and, you know, we would have to say hi and, and, uh, talk to each other. And little by little, I think, um, I think there's things I'm not really at liberty to say, but I think some people came to the, the realization that they didn't like what had happened and what they, what they had done. And I certainly didn't like it, but, um, what happened was the musical was made it to Broadway and the producers wanted to have a show. This was at the end, it was the beginning of 2018. They wanted a show to um, play for all the investors and, and key people. And they contacted me and they said, we want to do a show. We want you to be there. And I said, uh, that's good. <laughs> do, do are they gonna let me play? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, if I can play. And I I gotta tell you, Bob, that was the most that was the scariest thing I'd ever done was to fly to New York and show up in that rehearsal room. Oh man, I was so scared. Uh, like, what were they gonna be like? What were they? And it was this crazy thing where where it's a it's a a very weird bond that we have. Like the the ugliest most disgusting horrible things can happen but once we're together it was just like something i could see it i could almost see it happen i could see them going what well this is good this is how it should be and it certainly felt like how it should be to me and pretty quickly all was right in the world you know pretty quickly after that okay so since the lawsuit has been settled has there been a tour that you've been involved in no, we went, um, we played <laughs> the the first shows I did as a, like, We Want You Back in the Band uh, was four nights at the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Phil. So here's me. I've been playing like the club down the street for five years. And, and then I'm like at the Hollywood Bowl with the Philharmonic behind me. So I was a little nervous and felt unprepared. But we did that and we did a few warm-up shows. That was a drag, though, because Gina had had, neck surgery and and was dealing with um uh family stuff and couldn't play so my first time in five years and it's not with gina on the drums my my rhythm section mate isn't there so the exciting thing pre uh coronavirus was that we were going to go on tour this summer and all the shows were sold out we had some big ones really big gigs um along with just the regular usual stuff. So huge disappointment. This was going to be an amazing year. And the documentary happened. The doc and um we did the documentary over 2018 and some more things happened in January. I went to the the premiere and I've been back in the band for a year at this point, but it's still we're there's still levels of of healing and forgiving that that are still going on and as women in our 60s it's much more than the story of a band now it's it's really the story of 
Well, I guess it is the story of a band, but it it feels like more than a band when when women are are coming to terms or recognizing what these other people are in their lives and what they mean. I really, I, I love everybody in this band. I really, really do. We've been in touch a lot. Talking about this bad stuff with you is, you know, I, I get triggered and it stirs up and I I start feeling really gross, but I can replace it pretty quickly by remembering what it felt like to hug everybody after that documentary premiered. And last week, it was supposed to premiere at Tribeca and there was going to be a big announcement from a major the- theatrical, for a theatrical release and... It's all corona away, you know, along with my book tour. Okay, but didn't the Go-Go's go on a farewell tour saying it was the last tour? They did in 2016, and I was I was so annoyed because I thought, you know, do let me come on that tour at least. So it was really I was Oh, I, there was two things they did that was like the biggest ouches of all when I was not in the band. And one was the farewell tour without me. And one was they got like this private party thing that, that looked really fun. And I heard about it. And I was like, ah. So it wasn't like I was like, oh, I mean, I'm just like a human. You know, it's, it's right, like, But I guess a relative of you personally. Now, Motley Crue recently did this, but they signed in blood. It's kind of interesting that it they did a farewell tour and then you go back on the road. Does anybody think about that? Well, I think um, what they said, the Go-Go said, was we are retiring from touring. We're not breaking up. We're retiring from touring. We don't want to be do big tours. But if something special comes along, i.e. the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Philharmonic, we, we reserve the right to do special cool things. Because let's face it, this band has gotten amazing opportunities in the 90s, stuff that is not in the public eye. I mean, we've played for Muhammad Ali and at the T- Kennedy compound, and we were on a... a the Mardi Gras float and played at the Superdome. A lot of cool private stuff happens. And so the band wasn't saying we're breaking up and we're done. They said in 2016, we're done touring. And that was pretty much going to stick, except for this was the release of the documentary constituted a reason to go out. So as far as I know, nothing will ever happen again. You know, fans always say, why don't you this? Why don't you that? And it's like, well, it's not really one person's choice. Collectively, the band has decided they don't want to tour anymore. Okay. So talking about you personally, in the hopefully 20 to 30 years you have left on the planet, what would you like to achieve or what do you foresee? Um, I'm always going to play more music, and uh, I, I like playing in a band. I still like playing in a band. I have an amazing rock and roll band here in Austin called the Blue Bonnets, and it's just a cool rock and roll band. Everybody plays great, very fulfilling on that level, um, And but I'm not making a living at it. So what I'd like to do is write, write more books. Um I'd like to write a second memoir. I don't know what else I want to write. I I did a pretty good job with my short stories, and I think I could handle some fiction. But I'm kind of at that place where it's always in the back of my head, and I feel like... Like, if I don't do it, it's like I'm still like, where do I start? Where do I start? And I'm very... uh, close to getting to that point where I was like, you just start anywhere. That's what you do. You start anywhere because it's kind of in the back of my mind all the time. So I want to write more. I love doing the soundtrack to my book. I really liked creating music that had uh, 
a story to go with it. That was really interesting to me. I will continue to do more of that. And I want to move and live other places. I want to, I want to experience living in other places. And I want to finish my degree to my, take those last two classes. And I'll probably do more, uh, graduate school because I like going to school. I'd like to do women's studies. I'd like to do, um, Religious studies. There's a lot of. I think I could just collect. I think I might collect master's degrees. That sounds good. <laughs> or maybe become a, maybe become a, a like Doctor Valentine. That might be awesome. Get a PhD. Right. Well, I want to reinforce that this is not uh, all I've ever wanted. Is not a traditional rock memoir. But what I mean by that is, yes, it covers all the hot spots, but it's written in a literary fashion. It's just not a pastiche of the events. And that's one of the things that stuck out for me and why I wanted to do this with you, Kathy. But this has been wonderful. It's really been great hearing all these stories. Till next time, it's Bob Lefsett. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.